All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, no, there is not a uniform that all the elders wear at the same time. That's just me and Philip this morning. So, uh, th so no, the rest of you did not, not get the memo. Um, hey, it's good to see you all. Um, there's something that we failed to do just a minute ago that I think we could do better. Um, what happens in heaven when one person, one lost sheep comes home? Right? And so nine, nine lost sheep came home from Iraq. And so that's worth clapping about. Now, and, and there's a reason, there's a pedagogical reason that we should do that is because we should celebrate. We should long to see people come to know Christ. And what we're going to see this morning is that someone who most of us would consider to be the furthest that any possible human being could be from God comes home. And now, uh, there's a lot of folks who wonder if Nebuchadnezzar is truly in the kingdom. My hope is that those who doubt it, that he's there, is that when they get to heaven, that he's going to rush up to them first and say, I couldn't believe it either, but I'm glad to be here. And I'm glad you're here too, because I didn't think you were going to make it either. Uh, and so, uh, so let me, let's just get that out of the way. All right, so we are in Daniel chapter 4. Um, it's good to catch us up to where we are um, if you've been paying attention, the first uh, four chapters of Daniel really do focus on King Nebuchadnezzar. Probably at that time, one of the worst people in the world by most people's standards. Um, and he was arrogant and he was prideful. And if you remember, uh, he tried to transform those who were under his, um, that he had brought into exile. He tried to transform them into his image by the food that he gave them and the education that he gave them. He was trying to make them into small versions of himself. And if you remember, Daniel and, and his friends pushed against the dietary portion of it, but was willing to receive the education so that they could engage with the culture. Now, there's a balance there, isn't there? They didn't, they didn't swallow it wholesale. They only took in part of it, and we talked about the reasons for that. The, re the reasons for the food itself was its connection to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to see even further how Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is God. And that's going to come unglued for him, uh, and because God loves him too. And then in chapter 2, if you remember... He had this dream, and the dream was, was disturbing to him, and, and he had all of his wise men brought in and asked if they could, could tell him what the dream was and then tell him what the dream meant. They failed at that, and so he was going to just kill them all, right, because that's the kind of guy he is. If you can't give me what I want, you're of no use to me, so you are worthy of elimination, right? That's a program that we've seen many a tyrant bring to pass. And so that's just evidence of who King Nebuchadnezzar was. Uh, he, he was awful. But Daniel, if you remember, was courageous enough to step up and, and say, hey, I, I'm not wise, but my God is, so let's try that. And he prayed, and the Lord was gracious to Daniel and revealed this vision to the king, which included the statue of man, which was, uh, there was a reason it was in the statue of man, because man constantly thinks he's God. And so, remember, it was four different substances that this statue was made out of, which represented the varying kingdoms, and all Nebuchadnezzar heard was, I'm the head of gold. Never mind the rock that will grow into the mountain that will destroy the entire image. And he called for all, everybody to worship this image, 
And there was some civil disobedience that was pointed out because the Chaldeans hated Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Daniel, so they wanted them eliminated, right? And so they said, hey, we just want to point out that the people that you had brought into these positions of power, they don't, they don't serve you. You may want to do something about that. I remember Nebuchadnezzar's response. He was like, listen, <clears throat> I'm going to do the grace thing for you kids, but I'm only doing it because I don't want to look bad, because it looks bad that I brought you in and you can't behave. So it'll work out for both of us. I won't throw you on the barbecue if, if you'll just bow. So cue the music, let them try again. And if you remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, save the song. We're not doing it. God can save us, but he may not. That is his choice. He is sovereign. And so in great rage, he had it heated up because he wanted the, even the ashes to be so minimal that no one would know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had ever existed. Who does that that doesn't think they're God? That they could actually eliminate someone from history. And remember, it heated up so much that the only people that were killed initially were the people who tried to put them in the fiery furnace. And if you remember, it didn't actually dawn on Nebuchadnezzar something may not be right when they weren't, the three men were not killed immediately by the fire. They actually made it into the fire. And then he saw there was a fourth man with them as they walked through the fire. And he called him out. And it sounds like he's drawing closer to the heart of God, but what he's doing is just being pantheistic, which that just means he's willing to allow whatever God will benefit him. That's, he doesn't care because he himself thinks he's God. So I don't care if you worship your God as long as it'll make you behave. That sounds like a lot of us parents, if we're not careful. I don't care what version of God I have to put before you as long as it will control your behavior and make you better. That's another point altogether. But he calls them out and says, hey, you guys can worship freely. Anybody who doesn't like you worshiping, we'll kill them. We'll kill them all. Which, again, is drawing for allegiance. Again, the focus is all on King Nebuchadnezzar. The focus is all upon him being gracious, him allowing, him being God. Right? So chapter 4 is a beautiful picture of the gospel, of the grace of God, and we would miss it if we're not careful. In fact, it's the, the, even the construction of the chapter itself is very important. It begins with a doxology. You know what a doxology is? It is, a, it is a, a, a declaration of praise usually reserved for the end of something. But he begins with it. In fact, it was so confusing to those who were translating Daniel, they kept trying to stick it on the end of chapter 3. But it didn't make sense for what was going on in chapter 3. It really fit much better with 4. It begins with a doxology and it will end with an even greater doxology as he will tell his story in the middle now, whether or not you think Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven is not near as important as that you know that God can put him there if he chooses. Because if you think that there is someone or anyone or you are beyond saving, there is no one coming greater than Jesus to redeem you. The book of Hebrews speaks to that. So let's not argue whether or not we think Nebuchadnezzar will be there, because that, I, like I said before, will be revealed in eternity. And I'm okay if I'm wrong on either side as long as I'm there. I hope he's there, and I think that he is, given 
what he declares in both doxologies. I don't know how an unregenerate man could say what he's going to say, given all of his pride, all of his arrogance. So the question for us, before we can even talk about Nebuchadnezzar, is what do you believe about the ability of those who are at the uttermost to be saved? Is there anyone that you think there is no possible way they can be saved? Right? They're, they're just too awful. I, I, they're too hard-hearted. They're too arrogant. They're just too set in their ways. You tell me, is there, is there anyone more set in their ways than the king who is used to doing exactly what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, and he's got tons of people at his liege. He eats what he wants, when he wants. He has whatever women he wants, when he wants. He can do whatever he wants. Is there anyone that could be more set in their ways than that man? It's like we said before, if you go to eating steak and lobster every night, you ain't ever going back to ramen noodles voluntarily. And so Nebuchadnezzar is not exactly signing up for humbling, right? And so it's really important that you begin to wrestle within your heart. Are there those who you have deemed by your own godness so reprobate they can't be saved? Is there anyone that you've given up on? Is there anyone that you've ceased to pray for? Is there anyone that you have just given up on in terms of relationship? Is there anyone that you have cut off Altogether. Now, let me put an asterisk there. As one who has suffered, suffered both physical, mental, and sexual abuse, sometimes there, it is incredibly wise that you cut yourself off physically, mentally, and even spiritually from someone for a season. However, if repentance comes, you can't deny it. That doesn't mean you get back into the same relationship, so there's a lot that has to be unpacked there. So don't, don't mishear me there. You should still pray for that person, I think. But I understand a season and necessity of, hey, it's never going to be the same. I get that. But you can't want them to not go to the same place you're trying to get to in Christ. So, as we begin this chapter, that's an incredibly important thing to remember. The whole point of this sermon is that God graciously warns. That's really important. God is so gracious. He warns. He's so patient. It's incredible. God graciously warns and sovereignly humbles the proud in order to raise us. Now, let me pause right there for a second. Notice, notice who he warns and he humbles. Who? And who is that? That's us. There's a reason that I use the language there the way that I did. So, we are, if we don't recognize the plank in our own eye, the pride that lurks deep within us to think that we are smarter than God. We do it all the time. All we got to do, all I'd have to do is ask you guys, hey, tell me about your prayer life. The list would get short quick, probably for most of us. Tell me about your devotions. Tell me about, tell me about what you think about certain passages. If we're honest, some of you struggled with what Cameron Harrington talked about in terms of refugees. You immediately were thinking, 10,000 Muslims in one place, that's not safe. They need those folks need to go back and fix their own country. Instead of messing up ours or Greece, I don't care. Greece was messed up, by the way, before they showed up, just so you know. And in fact, them showing up may actually help Greece in some strange way economically. 
And it's not for us to decide one way or the other, by the way. It's the sovereignty of God who moves peoples, who raises kings, who do what they do to drive peoples in different directions, right? That's God's sovereignty at work. And for those who are serving among the refugees, it's not that they're ignorant of the dangers, I am sure. But they are far more aware of the redeeming possibilities that God who can save Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, is in that nine Iraqis who came to Christ, he's in their lineage. So they are trusting more in that than they are their own safety and security that actually no man can build because your problem is from within, not from without. So as we come to this text, let's keep in mind that God graciously warns, sovereignly humbles the proud in order to raise us up for his glory according to his redemptive promises. I want to remind you that the book of Daniel, so many people are, get so excited about prophecy in the book of Daniel and what it's pointing forward to. But what you miss if you do that is how many prophecies are actually being answered and brought to pass by what's going on in Daniel. That's actually the greater weight, which proves the faithfulness and sovereignty of God. Don't miss this. If you would turn to the text, Daniel 4, verses 1 through 3. <laughs> this is the king's doxology. He puts the end at the beginning. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, does that sound like the same king? Notice a couple of things here. Just as he called all nations to worship the 90 by 9 foot image that he put on the plain of Dura, which was where the Tower of Babel was, he called all nations to come and worship that. Notice what he does here. Hey, guys, I made a mistake. Let me, let me talk to all the nations again. In fact, peace be multiplied to you. Now, you've got to understand who's saying this. This is the dude who was leveling all his neighbors, who was destroying everyone in his path. So when he says peace be multiplied to you, don't you think some people would think, what in the world's wrong with this guy? He sounds like the Antichrist. Right? I mean, they would have worried that it, this was some sort of bait and switch. And then he goes on to have this confession of who God is, who that rock that becomes a mountain really is. He evidences his humility in psalm-like fashion as he declares that, no, it is God who is sovereign. It is his dominion that endures from generation to generation, not mine. Mine will end. And I know that now. So here, King Nebuchadnezzar begins straight away with a doxology of praise so that everyone knows the story I'm about to tell you. It's, it's too good to be true, but it is. Notice what he says. It's, it's what God has done for him that moves him to want to share the story. And the same should be true for us. God has done, in this room, as I look out over you, I know many of you are in difficult circumstances. I know it. I do. And I know that there is yet resolution 
take heart. He's done so much that is good so far that he has not grown tired. He has not given up. He has not lost power. Darkness will not have the final say over you. It may not go the way you want. It may not end the way that would make you look best or feel best, but it will end in the way that you will be able to bring glory to him, which should be our greatest and highest joy. And one of the things that we have talked about, especially in terms of the Sabbath, one of the great gifts of the Lord's Day Sabbath to us is that we're given a day on which we can remember. We are terrible at remembrance, right? We take very little time for reflection in our culture. It's not part of who we are. We're all about the false doctrine of progress this way, right? Everything's got to be getting bigger, better, faster, more efficient, and, and all those kinds of things. And that's a real trap to us if we're not careful. It's really important that we take time to pause and to reflect and to remember all of the good things that God does. We are, we are terribly entitled about lots and lots of things, right? Even the fact that you woke up today, you probably took as a foregone conclusion. You shouldn't. The fact that there is any joy in this day at all, the fact that your pumpkin spice latte was appropriately uh, uh, made this morning, mine was, and amen. And, and I say that without shame. So, is it good for me? No. It's suntan lotion or some other disgusting substance. But I'm trying to balance all that out, right? So, we take a lot for granted. And so the Lord has said to us, I give you a day on which you can pause and you can breathe and you can reflect and you can know that I am good and that I love you. Because I know the other six days are a tyranny, a pharaoh that drives you hard, a clock that demands so much of you. For those of you who are in college, this is something that you think is only going to be a portion of your life. No, it is the whole of your existence. Take heart and learn today how to say no at least one day and yes to the things that are good. Because I'm here to tell you the tyranny doesn't stop. And the tyranny is not just college, it's life. And so here Nebuchadnezzar pauses and says, hey, this is a story worth telling because God has done so many good things. It seems good to me to share this with you. Listen to what the, uh, Stephen R. Miller says about this passage. He says, the phrase, it has seemed good to me, shows that it was a true joy for the king to share what God had done in his life. He had delivered him from madness. This should be the attitude of any believer. If God has done something wonderful, an individual should be delighted to share that experience with others. See, our evangelism is not about technique. Our evangelism is not about you getting the, all the, the components of the story right. Like, it's not about you knowing who's the eighth beast kingdom in, in the book of Revelation. It's not about you being able to quote Obadiah from, from memory. It is about you being able to say, hear how God who is sovereign has humbled me and changed me and, and done what has seemed good to him and brought me joy for his glory. That's, the, that's what we should be able to share with people. We should have a story to tell of some kind. And you, like I said, so much of what you have is part of that story. The trouble is you may not be recognizing it. 
for what it really is. You may be presuming upon it in a way that is arrogant and prideful. I know I do. So, what are some of the things that God has done in your life that you could share with others for his glory? That's a a question that I really think you should think through this Lord's Day. you You should be every Lord's Day taking some amount of time to reflect on how that's true of the last week. That God, in many ways, is good, even in suffering. Even in the difficulties, we should look for where that light shines and how he's moving us, right? So think about it. Take time. Share. Make sure you share with your children the good things that God has done. Teach them how to do this. Teach them to remember. Teach them to see the world with grateful eyes and hearts and minds because they they, all of culture is calling for them to be entitled. We saw this with our daughter, Kimberly. We, we didn't give her everything. We made her drive a Ford Focus. That's like child abuse. That cost like $1,500. No, actually, we sold it for $1,500. I think we paid about $5,000. But for her, with all of her friends driving BMWs and Hummers and all these things, it was like, you don't love me. Right? And she, audit, she assumed all of these things. And we were like, Where, where's this coming from? We are Spartan. We sent the child to school. She had a fever of like 104. That is child abuse. We didn't know it was 104. The nurse had to tell us. But we were like, if you stay home, you're staying in bed. You don't get any electronics. I mean, it was a tough existence. And she was like, let me throw up real quick, and then I'll go to school. <laughs> so, so, yeah, okay, we're, we're all awful. And it didn't work either, right? You can't change the heart from the outside. It can only be changed from the inside. And so all of the rules and all that stuff doesn't change it. It's in the air. It's in their heart. Entitlement is an East of Eden issue. Remember, they thought they were entitled to decide how they would look like God instead of God deciding how they would look like him. That entitlement is deep, deep, deep in us all. The Sabbath is a great opportunity to push against the entitlement. Let's turn back to the larger portion of the text. This is going to be Nebuchadnezzar's story. And give your attention to it. I will pause along the way because it is a bit lengthy. It's about 30 or so verses. But we'll get through. Listen to what he says, his testimony. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now I want to pause right there for a second. The fact that he opens with this, hey, Everything was fine. I was good. So this isn't like one of those experiences where he has a difficult situation that, that, that rattles him. Not, he was good to start with from the start. So he's letting folks know, hey, I was, I was, in, my, I was in my zone. I was in my lane. I was doing, doing my thing. He said, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Let me pause there. Again, God is willing to use the things that would actually speak to him. So for a Babylonian, a dream was a very important thing. They, may, they put a lot of stock in dreams. I don't know about you, but the dreams I have, I can't put any stock in. Um, and so it's, just, it's not good. And so, um, so he would, would have listened. That would have perked him up. And the Lord was willing to use 
dreams, and he also uses them in other places as well. Sounds like he's using them with the refugees. I don't think that that, has necess- that part has necessarily ceased. And so he's having these dreams again. So he says, I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. So this is different than the first time, right? First time he called them in and said, you got to tell me the dream. They were like, dude, this is impossible. You're crazy. Nobody's ever asked for this. Only the gods can do it, and they don't walk among flesh. And then Daniel came in and said, ah, that's actually not true. So he calls him in again, and this time he actually gives it to him. I'm going to tell you what it is, and let's see if you can interpret it. And he says, that they may make, might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. Notice what he didn't call him. What did he not call him? The name he had given him. He calls him Daniel as he's recounting the story, but when he goes back into the story, he'll call him by the name he gave him. But this is an evidence that even in the naming, Nebuchadnezzar is realizing, no, he's Daniel, not the man that I tried to make him into. He's God's man. And then he goes back into the story and he says, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in the bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heavens and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Let me pause right there for a second. What does that sound like? Sounds like Genesis 1. Sounds like the Tower of Babel. See, this vision that he's having is that there is something that is great in all the earth that feeds everybody, that gives shade to everybody, that is the most meaningful thing in all the earth. It provides security and safety. This is a great vision. This is a vision of a God. But it goes on. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off all of its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, 
And O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its, its tip top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which the food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So here's the interpretation. You, you think you're God. You think that you control what comes down from heaven because you, like the Tower of Babel, reach all the way up to heaven. You think you are God because you provide all of the food necessary for all of your kingdom. And your kingdom, your dominion, it has no end. It is large. And you, you think you provide protection and safety and security because the birds nest in your branches and there are those who, who are in your shade. You think you have control. There's a problem. You're not God. And the Most High has called for you to be cut down and all that you have destroyed because you are not the God of Genesis 1 that says, I will provide for my people all that they need. I will give them dominion. I will give them protection. I will feed them. You're not him. And because you think you're him, you must fall. But there's grace in this. There's grace in this because on two fronts, he says, and if you'll repent right now, if you will pursue righteousness and you will love the oppressed and you will do justice and walk humbly with the Lord your God, your prosperity could be extended. God is saying to him, repent and live. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And even in the vision, there's grace. Even though you will be cut down, if at some point you realize the truth, 
that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms. He decides who will sit on the throne, and they are often the lowliest of men. Don't miss that. Even who sits on the throne should know that he has been chosen because he is lowly, not because he is great. He says, There's a, there will be a stump, even though it will be wrapped with a band of iron and bronze that will keep you from doing more than you would want to, there will still be a remnant if you will repent. It's not over yet. So the grace of God is beautifully displayed here in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar had not been kind to God's people, by the way. He had been God's instrument, but he had not been kind to the image. This man is arrogant. He thinks he is God. And yet, the God of the universe says, but I love you. Even though you think you're God. Even though you have done awful things to my people. Even though you, you think that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, I love you. And as one commentator says, Daniel is actually the kindness of God to Nebuchadnezzar. But notice how Nebuchadnezzar responds immediately. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? So he hears all that Daniel says. And a year later, he's walking on the roof. And if you know anything about Babylon, it was, it was glorious. It was one of the major, that garden was one of the major wonders of the world. And he's looking out on it and he goes, I think the part of the vision that's true is I'm awesome. I am incredible. Look at all that my hand has made in my image. Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen. And listen at how God responds. Verse 31. I love this. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew and heaven, uh, and of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. What's happening here is God is saying, no, I am God. I am the creator. You are the creature. In fact, you are nothing more than a beast of the field. I will reduce you as far as a man can be reduced until you repent and know that I am God. Can you imagine what he looked like if his, if his nails grew into talons and he had these long eagle's feathers? He probably would have looked like the, what's the guy with the birds that nested in his hair and the Lord of the Rings? Probably would have looked something like him. I don't know all the characters. Who was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to pronounce that. It sounds like I'm speaking in tongues. Uh, <clears throat> so he would have been awful to look at. Think about this for a second. Think. Nebuchadnezzar the Great, 
is in the field eating grass like an ox, like he has lost his mind. You don't think his enemies would have cheered? You don't think that those within his own court who found his brutality to be unbearable, you don't think that they celebrated? Here he has been reduced to less than a man. And here he thought he was a god. So what are some of the ways that God has called you to repentance and humility? How has he had to break you to get your attention? This question has wrecked me. I got too many stories to tell, but the one I will tell is the one that I think is most pertinent to my ministry and the calling that God had. Um, When I came into New City Church, which was an Acts 29 church in Macon. I remember walking up to Keith Watson. He he and I laugh about this now. And I said to him, hey, don't get used to me. I'm not going to be around very long. I'm a lead guy. I'm going to plant my own thing. Uh, It'll probably be inner city. I'm not trying to do what you're doing. So I'm no threat to you. And inherent within that was because I was saying, and you are no threat to me. Right? Why Keith would have let me stay, I have no earthly idea, other than the Lord said, you're going to want to see this. So a few years later, as an elder, uh, I had yet to plant a church and had to step down. My family was coming apart at the seams. I was disqualified, right, by God's loving grace. And the verse that always rang in my head was Numbers 32, 23, which says, your sin is going to find you out. My sin was arrogance. And I want you to think there was something more insidious going on. It was arrogance, and it was finding me out. The hardest service I have ever sat through in my life was the one where we announced I was stepping down. I was in such agony. I remember fleeing New City and people calling after me, and I wouldn't turn around. I ran. Only time in my life I've ever run. And yet, the Lord was gracious to restore and to bring back. And I felt like I was being reduced, not in the same way as this, but God was revealing to me, you arrogant fool, I love you. This is not what's most important, you planting a church or you even being a leader. And I remember Susan one time on the beach asked me this question, I almost threw her in the ocean, by the way. She said, what if this is all there is? What if all God wants you to do is love your family well and be a physical therapist? And never be a pastor. Is that not enough for you? I told her to shut up. No, I didn't. I I don't know that I said a whole lot. In fact, I had to, the next day, I said, I got to go away for a little while and spend some time with the Lord. And the Lord was so gracious, and he used the song that Rich Mullins wrote toward the end of his life. In fact, he never got to record it in full. It was just these tapes that he did in this little old church. And I listened to that song over and over and over again. And the song is, Surely God is with us. And it says, the drunks all seem to love him, or the whores all seem to love him. The drunks propose a toast, and they say, surely God is with us. And he speaks of the the moment when the, the Roman soldier says, does this man truly deserve to die between two thieves? And yet, surely God is with us. I was able to walk away from that moment and say, I don't, I think you're right. If that is all there is, may it be so, Lord. Well, 
That wasn't all there was. And it's very important that I remember in great humility that breaking and that I never ever think that I am beyond the breaking and that the, and that the breaking has stopped, by the way. May it continue. May I continue to be broken of my arrogance and my pride and may he do it in such a way that brings him glory. I'm not excited about that. But I am excited to see how it will bring glory to the Lord ultimately. And you should be too. The thing that we should never fear is being broken. The thing that we should never fear is, the, is God's severe mercy as we see with Nebuchadnezzar and how he broke him. Now listen at how the story concludes. He comes back to give yet another doxology because the one at the beginning wasn't near enough and this one is fuller yet. Listen at what it says. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At, this time, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Did you hear that? Is that not the confession of a redeemed man? He's been restored and can easily have gone right back to what he was before, like many of us do, by the way. Right? When we, when we say we're sorry, we don't really mean it. We're just trying to reload. Whereas he, he is broken. And the first place that he looks is up. Colossians 3 calls for us to do the same, Yes? Look to the right hand of the Father where Christ is seated on high, where your life is hidden until he returns and reveals it in glory. See, he doesn't say, I'm, I'm sorry, this is all about me, and he doesn't go over his sin management plan. He begins to worship immediately. True repentance should lead us immediately to worship. This is why I can say, how you know who you are is which way you run when you mess up. If you run from God and think you've got to get your stuff together before you come back, you could not be more wrong. No, the redeemed are able to run immediately to the throne of grace. So many of you have struggled to come to church when things aren't going well, right? I get it. There is an agony sometimes here. But where else would you go? If you're only going to come here when you have it all together, then don't come at all. It's a waste of your time. We should run here. Run to the place where God's people are. Run to where worship is, is, is able to apply the balm of Gilead. 
Why would you not want to hear the assurance of pardon? Again, why would you not want to let the words seep deep down into you in ways that only the Spirit can bring? Healing. So oh, I get, but I get it. Don't hear me throwing stones at you, but I want to say to you, don't not come because you don't have it together because here's the truth. You never have it together. You're just better at pretending some days than others, Sundays in particular. Whereas this is the place we ought to be most honest. Any of us who have any kind of AANA background will tell you the church ought to take a page out of that book. I know that makes some of you uncomfortable that we would, we would share our brokenness in public. You know what people are going to think about us? You know what people already think about you? Far worse when you're arrogant. Far worse. They're just nice to you because they think they can get something from you. Let them see who you really are and find out who they really are and what we really are. If it reduces this church, then let it be so, Lord, so that we could actually get to the hard work, the true work of the gospel, which is redemption. So the Lord here has raised this man up. And listen at that last line again. He says, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is fulfilling a prophecy, several that are in Isaiah, that speak of the kings being humbled. This is a down payment to the people of God to show them it's happening. The kings are coming in. It's not yet over, but I'm just showing you, the people who are in exile, I just want you to see, I can move the heart of a king and make him mine. Take heart, though you are still in exile, Daniel, because this would have been about the 30, 35 year mark. Halfway in, 30, 35 to go. And many kings who will follow who are far worse than Nebuchadnezzar. You're gonna hear about one next week when Matthew O'Sullivan preaches on Daniel chapter five. So this down payment, this, this should help us See the reach of God and the goodness of God. And if you are being broken and you are being humbled, take heart and take joy in the breaking and the humbling. I had a brother uh, correct me last week um, in great grace. One of the things that I have said is I wish I didn't have my story. Now, that's, a, that's an honest, very earthy statement. That's a dirt level statement, right? I, I wish I didn't have to go through the suffering that I have so with the presumption that somehow life would have been better, that there was a better fork in the road, which just happens to not be true. And it's to belittle God's sovereignty, really. It's to say, Lord, I, I wish you'd have done this a different way because I just don't think it's working out, bro. But really what I should do is say thank you. Thank you for the scars. Thank you for the suffering. Thank you for the hurt because you are doing something beautiful with it. You're keeping my pride at bay. You're keeping me from thinking that I'm something that I am not. You're telling me that I am yours, son of the most high God. And that's good. And I appreciated him saying that to me, even though I tried to fight back against him a little bit. But I appreciated his willingness to say, don't say that. That's not good for you. Don't wish for another story. Yours is important because God is sovereign and he chose it for you. 
Get that for me, if you don't mind. And tell them we're doing something important here. <laughs> this is what Charles Simeon says. Is that our cue to end? Was that what that was? We've heard enough. Charles Simeon says, what a glorious evidence was this of the transforming efficacy of divine grace. It is no easy matter for any man to acknowledge and confess his pride, but to confess it openly, to take shame to himself for it publicly before all. This is a work of grace indeed, and it is the true and proper operation of grace upon the soul. See, true grace allows us to not hide. True grace allows us to not fear what you think. True grace allows us to take and offer up our broken cups for redemptive purposes. So how has God restored you following his gracious exposure of your pride? How is God restoring you? How will he restore you, the God who is and who was and who is to come? That is worth you thinking about this day and giving praise for. Use the Sabbath for the gift that it is to you to think about these things. So what do we learn from Daniel chapter 4? One, that God's redeeming mercy and grace should move us to share our story with others. So many of you are not sharing your story because you're not thinking about it and you're thinking about it wrongly. You're thinking it has to be some sort of theological treatise that gets all of the, the parts right. No. Best thing you can do is say, I don't know either, and that's a mystery to me too. But let's figure it out because God is good. Two, that God graciously warns and sovereignly humbles the, the proud in his severe kindness. If he's breaking you, it's to redeem you. If he wanted to judge you, he can do that quickly. Three, God raises up the humbled for his glory according to his redemptive purposes. He is faithful and sovereign. As we close out, listen to this quote from Ian DeGood, or Duguid. The great and mighty persecutor of Israel, the destroyer of Jerusalem, had at last been humbled by God's grace and brought to confess God's mercy. His personal experience showcases God's power. If someone like Nebuchadnezzar can be humbled and restored, then surely no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you humble the proud. Thank you that you tell us how prideful we are in the power of the Spirit, and you convict. Thank you that Jesus suffered what we will not have to suffer for our pride if we are in union with him by your grace alone, through faith alone. God, thank you that you have given us so many gifts and opportunities to share the goodness of our stories. God, forgive us for being so slow to share, for thinking we don't have much to share or anything of value to share. Forgive us for wanting a different story. Forgive us for failing to see where you are good. But God, we thank you for Nebuchadnezzar, who is broken and gives us a beautiful picture of the magnitude and beauty of your grace and the depth to which it can and does go. May we take heart for those who are in here thinking that they are unsalvageable. May they know. May they know that you love them. May they know that you long to be their father in Christ. God, if there's anyone in here who is thinking that there is someone else who's unforgivable, who cannot be saved, break them, Lord. Break their arrogant pride in thinking that there's someone you couldn't reach. And show them the beauty of that redemption so that they would love you more. 
so that they would know you more, so that the beauty of your redemption could be on display in a dark and broken world. God, may we use this day to honor and glorify you. May your spirit stir within us to think through how you have been good. Show us, show us all of the places where you are at work so that we could give praise. In Christ's name, amen.